0: Last week, we saw that Paul was in Ephesus, and when he's there, he encounters some interesting people, disciples of John, who were still waiting for the Messiah to come. They had only been baptized as John the Baptist had told them to, and they, not only had they not received the Holy Spirit, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so, they heard the gospel, they believed, and they showed evidence of their faith and the Holy Spirit's working in their lives. Paul stays many more months preaching and teaching, and more people believe. And he did this for two more years so that everyone in Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. That's what we saw last week. Today we're going to begin in verse 11, Acts nineteen eleven. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Notice what this text says. These miracles were extraordinary. Now, miracles are out of the norm anyway, but to call a miracle extraordinary is even more than an unusual occurrence. The word itself, extraordinary, is extraordinary. It's not normal, right? First of all, look, who is doing these miracles? It is God. God, Luke says, was doing the miracles, not Paul. Paul is not given the credit here for being a miracle worker or a faith healer or anything like that. God is working in and through Paul as God sees fit. That is so important to understand. Paul never sought for miracles or fame or fortune. He didn't advertise his miraculous gifts. He never put the spotlight on himself as the one who is doing these crazy things. Paul, in fact, never made that the main thing. Ever. When miracles happened in and through the apostle, it was the Lord who was doing it. It was not something manipulated by the apostles or, or uh, manufactured by the apostles. It was God doing as he sees fit through the apostles' ministry. What was the Apostle Paul's main focus? It wasn't doing miracles. It was preaching Christ it was preaching the word of god that's where paul saw his identity and his main ministry the miracles served to back up his message not to be the focal point of everything that happens and we see that as miracles happen through the book of acts they served for those who didn't believe to realize that the person who is preaching for god is genuine and authentic and you ought to listen to him and the miracles are proof not the main meal in fact this is what paul says in 1 corinthians chapter 2 he says and i when i came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or wisdom for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Remember, as we saw a few weeks ago, when Paul arrived in Corinth, he was not in a great place, was he? He was fearful, he was trembling, he was weak. He had wanted to give up the Jews there, there in Corinth. And he needed a, an awakening there from God and an assurance and the Lord gave it to him. You can go back and listen to that sermon a few weeks ago about Paul being discouraged in ministry. But here you would think that if you had never met the Apostle Paul, you would think he's a fantastic speaker, isn't he? He probably captivates people by his speech and his tone of voice and just garners people. No. He didn't come in here with all this intellectual prowess or wisdom or lofty speech. This is in reference to the philosophers of the day who could wow the crowd by their smarts. Right? And Corinth was one of those cities with very intellectual people. He didn't come in there and wow them with his intellect or wow them by his speaking ability. If so, then people would be persuaded and won by himself. Instead, he said, I went there and I didn't want anything to know about you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, my message, he says in verse 4, was not in even plausible words. I mean... I told you that God became a man. His name is Jesus. He lived, was crucified, and he rose again from the dead. Most people don't think that that story is very plausible. You would think I would make up something better to convince you to believe in God. But yet, you believed. And the fact that you believed is proof that God is working in you. That the spirit of power is demonstrating himself through the truth. That's what Paul's main drive was. It was not working miracles or speaking in tongues or or any of that kind of stuff. It was preaching the word of God and calling people to God's law and gospel. And that was his authority. He never sought glory, although Luke says here that he was doing extraordinary miracles. That God was doing it, through the hands of Paul. Now, many of these so-called miracle workers today, I'm sure you've seen them on TV, right? Or faith healers. They want the glory. They smile with their pearly whites on TV, right? Invite you to send just 1995 and they'll send you a free book or gift or Healing water or handkerchief or something like that. They're frauds. They're fakes. You can see right through their motives down to their pockets. They think that they have the power to heal and it comes from them. Once I would love to see one of these hoaxers go to a children's hospital and if they really did have that power to heal, walk through the hospital and let not there be one child. Left in that hospital. They won't. They won't. And of course when it doesn't work. They say that you didn't have enough faith. It was your problem. They think that the power to heal comes from them. But this is not what we see in the the New Testament. This is not what we see in Paul's life. At all. Paul's drive was to preach God's word. And these people like this take advantage of passages in the Bible like this. That Paul's doing extraordinary miracles, and they try to make it normative for the Christian life. We talked a little bit about that last week. The one thing that we've said often in this series through Acts, and we've been in here now 15 months, 15 months, and we're in chapter 19, so do the math. There's 28 chapters, if you're wondering how much longer we're going to be there, is that These miracles and the things that are happening in Acts were not to be normative. If it was normal, then it would be ordinary, wouldn't it? But it's not ordinary. It's not the ordinary Christian life. It's the extraordinary. It's not normal. Matter of fact, this is more than just miraculous. It's extraordinarily miraculous. They served a purpose in the book of Acts, as we've said before. One of them was the evangelism of unbelieving Jews. Jews. We saw last week, it was the 12 disciples of John the Baptist who Paul saw in Ephesus. And secondly, as we've already said, it was to authenticate the ministry of the apostles. It was never meant to bring them fame or fortune. They were never meant to bring glory to themselves. It was meant to bring glory to God. And that is what we will see in this passage. Paul's extraordinary miracles were never supposed to bring himself glory. Because it wasn't even Paul who was doing it. It was God. So, let's look at one of these extraordinary miracles that Luke describes for us here. And see why it is extraordinary. Look at verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin speaking about paul were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them this is wow handkerchiefs and the aprons were basically sweat rags they were meant to be worn on the body to absorb sweat they lived in a very hot climate very warm climate. This is not a handkerchief used to blow your nose. I know the word handkerchief is a little bit confusing. It's the best English equivalent to what the Greek word is there in the first century. It's not the handkerchief to blow your nose. It was more wrapped around the head, kind of like a bandana in a sense, which is kind of like a handkerchief in a way. And an apron is not something you cook with, you know, that says kiss the cook or something like that. An apron was a, like a belt that you wore around your waist. And again, the purpose was to absorb sweat. So how it all started, we don't know. But someone who was sick or demon-possessed touched Paul's sweat rags. And they were healed. Explain that. How do you explain a miracle? Except... God did it. God did it. And kind of gross. <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what's worse, having, you know, when Jesus spit in the mud and rubbed it in the blind, eyes, blind guy's eyes, or Paul's sweat. Which, which one would you rather have? I don't know. So, and people were healed. Demons fled. That's Extraordinary. God, God, God did it, not Paul. God is using Paul. Listen, it's very important. God is using Paul. Paul is not using God. That's what happens today with these crooks and frauds that purport this nonsense. Paul's not seeking these miracles. God is doing them through him as he wills. And listen, Paul didn't learn it. He didn't study it. It just happened. And yet, today, we have scores of people doing just that. We have scores of people who are learning how to do miracles, studying how to perform them. And they even do it in the name of Jesus. Let me tell you, that is sickening. It is blasphemous. One of the biggest frauds today of this kind of teaching is from Bethel Church in Redding, California. Some of you are very familiar with them. Bethel Church in Redding, California is a very influential megachurch that promotes heresy and false doctrine and such. They use and abuse people with lies and confusion about so many things. And you probably know them by their music. If you don't, have never heard of them anyway. They've got some of the most popular worship songs that most churches sing. And Bethel music or Jesus culture. Jimmy knows he's under strict orders. We don't sing anything by Bethel church here. Or Jesus culture. or Nor do we encourage you to. Because it's, I think it's just promoting a blasphemous organization and church And listen to this, they even have a college. They have a college there on their church campus, and the name of it is the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. It's been jokingly referred to by its critics as the Christian Hogwarts. If you've ever read Harry Potter, then you know what I'm talking about. They claim and teach that you can learn how to do supernatural ministry if you go to their college. So this week I went to their website and I was curious about their course catalog and to just get an example of what classes they're teaching. Here's just four classes that they're teaching. One, healing. Living in a realm of healing and miracles. Number two, a class on the prophetic. How to prophesy. Number three, cultivating the presence and miraculous. How to demonstrate the kingdom with signs, wonders, and miracles. And four, dream interpretation. Do you see the difference between Paul and Bill Johnson, who is the leader of this church and college out there? I hope so. There is a drastic difference. They claim the credit. God is the one who does the miracles It just happened to Paul. And here the others, even people today, are telling you that you can manufacture it. You can learn it. You could do it as a professional. That is blasphemy. And taking scripture out of context. Anyway. But this is not just common today. It was even common in Paul's day. Because look where this story goes. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So you have itinerant traveling exorcists. Well, that's what itinerant means. It means traveling. So you have traveling exorcists. These men back then were Jewish and they would travel around and Find demon-possessed people and attempt to exercise that demon. Of course, for a simple donation of 1995 to their ministry, of course. And there are many ancient documents that are recorded back from those days that actually record some of the incantations that these people would use. And they would try anything and everything. Whatever they could find, the name of this or the name of that, whatever they could do, they would try And I don't believe they were ever very successful in exercising demons. Because when Jesus did it in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus met the man who was demon-possessed. In Luke chapter 4, what was the response of those who saw Jesus cast out that demon? And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They're saying, he just commanded those demons to leave and they did. And yet these people are walking around thinking they could say hocus pocus, magic, abracadabra, whatever. And that these demon-possessed people will be freed of their demons. They traveled around finding people to do this to. And they probably saw what was going on with Paul. Wait a minute. We are struggling to find the latest word to say, to sell to our people, to free them of demons. And you were just taking Paul's sweat rags? You mean Paul is not even saying anything? People just touch his sweat rags and the demons come out? Oh, well, we got to try that one. So they started going around and they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> there's got to be something to this Jesus, and there's got to be something to this Paul. So in, in his God's name, and through Paul's sweat, come out, demons. They were trying that. They try to copy Paul. If you can't beat them, join them, type of thing. Let's try this Jesus they don't believe in Jesus. Again, they are trying to use God for their purposes. They're not being used by God. They're, being, they're using God for their profit and fame. And then we see in verse 14, a specific group of these people who were influenced to do this. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva... Were doing this. Again. They tried to invoke the name of Jesus. But this time. The seven sons of Sceva. Which was a Jewish priest. These brothers. All got together. Tried to rebuke a demon. Jesus whom Paul believes. Proclaims. And what do the demons say to this man? To these seven men. He says to them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? That's pretty amazing. For the first time, some demon responds to them. Whoa, that's never happened before. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus, Paul? Yeah, we know them. Who are you? What are you doing here? This is really amazing. The demons know Jesus. We know that. They don't know him savingly, of course. But they know him with great fear and trembling. They know he is God. They know he has the authority. And there's two Greek words here. They know Jesus and they recognize Paul. The knowing Jesus is an experiential knowledge of Jesus. They have experience with Jesus And they don't want anything to do with him. And we see demons interact with Jesus in the Gospels. Here's for example one instance in Matthew chapter 8. And verse 28. When Jesus came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes. Two demon possessed men met him. Coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Oh, demons know who Jesus is. They have great experience with him. And they hate him and fear him. In fact, this is what James even says. James chapter 2, 19 says, he writes to his believers there, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What, what are demons? Demons are fallen angels. They're angels, a third of the host of heaven that fell with Satan in his rebellion in the beginning. That's who demons are. Demons know Christ, not savingly but fearfully. Paul, we recognize this is a different kind of word. It it means we, we acknowledge Paul. We've heard of him. Like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with him either, but but who are you? What an insulting thing to say to these seven sons of Sceva, right? Their, their dad's the high priest. They're riding his coattails of fame and celebrity status and Their town and what? How do the demons know Paul but not us? Hmm. I'll give her 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, these seven sons of Sceva, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked. And wounded. The demon inside this man recognizes that these seven bozos are nobodies. Who are you? And when he realizes that they're nobodies, through the man, he jumps on these men, beats them up, tears off their clothes, and they run away naked. Now, someone has once wisely said, If you enter a fight with pants on, but then you leave the fight with no pants on, you've probably lost. (laughs) The point is that these guys mess with something they have no control over nothing. And it winds up controlling them. Then they are humiliated in front of the whole city. They sought the glory for themselves. Maybe this will work. Maybe if we use Paul's sweat in Jesus' name, our business will boom, right? We'll get more customers. What they're doing is blasphemous, as we've already said. And really, they're taking God's name in vain, aren't they? They're taking the name of God in vain, which is the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Christians should never flippantly use God's name. And it's so sad when we hear Christians say that repeatedly. Even to abbreviate it, OMG, is not good. Initial it all you want. It's taking God's name in vain in a more subtle way. Men try to rob the glory from God, and what happens? You know what happens? Every time men try to rob God of his glory, God is glorified anyway. Every time. Let's build a great tower of Babel, so reach the heavens. What does God do? He gets the glory. He messes up their plans, confuses their languages, and uses it for his glory. Let's crucify this Jesus. We'll stop God, Satan must be thinking, and his plans. And what does God do? Through the death of Jesus, glorifies himself to save a people who he has redeemed. You name it. You name the situation. When you try to write God of his glory, beware. God will still get the glory and it will not go well for you. In verse 17, these guys running out of the house naked and all beat up. That's the kind of news that gets on the front page of the paper. And that's what happened. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Wow. On that day, when the city saw that the God of Paul, which is Christ, was mightier than the demon-possessed man, they said, wait a minute here. Someone has more authority here. And we need to figure out who that is. And they produced, God produced in these residents of the town, all the residents of Ephesus, a holy reverence for God. They had a holy fear of God. So that the name of Jesus was extolled. The word extolled means to increase in honor. Another word you could use there is magnify. What does a magnifying glass do? It makes items larger so that you could see them. The name of Jesus was magnified. The name of Jesus, after these seven sons of the high priest were beat up and fled naked, made Jesus' name greater. Because the people in the city saw the authority and glory of God over these demons and these false hoaxers. These itinerant Jewish exorcists. Wow. Paul can defeat demons by his sweat. No labor or even planning from him. It wasn't Paul who did it. It was God. It was God. They see Jesus is worthy of being worshipped. And that's not all. Not only was there, was there a holy fear of Jesus' name that gripped the city. Because of these seven sons of Sceva. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What does a holy fear of God and his glory produce in people? Repentance. You cannot fear God and love your sin the same way. You cannot fear God and continue to do the things that God hates. And those people, some of those people, came to believe in the Lord Jesus. And because of their new faith in him, they confess their sins and say, yeah, I was kind of doing the same thing. There is so much witchcraft happening in Ephesus, it's ridiculous. Many of those who had practiced witchcraft came and said, we believe in Jesus, we're getting rid of this. If that is the power of Jesus' name, that even that demon-possessed man which ravaged the city and everyone feared him... that." that name of Jesus terrifies that demon, then guess what? We want nothing to do with that. And so some of them believed, but not all of them believed. But even those who didn't believe, who were also practicing the magic arts and their books and all those things that were doing to trick people, came and brought their books and they had a big book burning in Ephesus. They said, we're not ready to believe in Jesus yet, but you know what? We want nothing to do with this. Why? A holy fear of God. In fact, Luke records here that if you count the value of all the books that burned that day, it was equivalent to 50,000 pieces of silver. Let's put that in perspective. One piece of silver is what somebody received back then for one day's wage. Right? It was kind of like minimum wage one piece of silver. So 50,000 pieces of silver would be the equivalent of one person working 137 years. That's a lot of silver. That's a lot of money and value that was burned. We're going to throw all that money away. 137 years at minimum wage. Even that is a lot of money. But you know what? We fear God more than we want these books. And we will give those up Because we know the God of Paul is worthy to be worshipped. So some believed, some didn't. But even those who didn't believe said, we want nothing to do with this. What is happening here? God is glorifying himself. We began with men who wanted to glorify themselves. To manipulate and use God to their advantage. Those men are humiliated. They're brought low. Beat up and left naked. And it ends with God being worshipped. God being praised. New believers as a result. And city wide transformation. Because that day... All the witchcraft books burnt up. If God can do that through Paul's sweat. What can he do in our city? Think about it. By Paul's sweat. He got rid of all the books. In Ephesus. Of the magic arts. Again. What does the glory of God produce in people? A holy fear of God. You know, this is what our country needs now more than ever. This is why things are the way they are. Why are the, way, why are the things the way they are in this nation? Because we don't fear God anymore. That's just the truth. We, sin has not changed In a hundred years. Right? Sometimes people talk about the good old days. Well, even in the good old days, the hearts of people were depraved. And just as sinful as they are now. The difference is, from today to a hundred years ago, is the acceptance of sin. The tolerance of sin and breaking God's law. Right? Right? And so now we fear more people's feelings than the God who created them. And so we're willing to tolerate and accept things that God forbids because we fear people more than we do God. What we need more than anything in this world is a fear of God. And yeah, in those good old days that you would call, sorry, I was born in 1977, I was a little kid, but I don't remember things being that bad or that good either. So, way before me, maybe you were saying, hey, things were better then. Still sinful hearts. The problem is, as a nation, we have lost our fear of God. And what does no fear of God produce? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Things will go upside down. Wrong becomes right. Right becomes wrong. And when you destroy the foundations and you throw the Bible out of school and you throw away truth and common sense and absolutes, what do you get? No fear of God. All you need to fear is who you want to become and make other people slave to you. But what does fear of God produce? Holiness. Repentance. A faith in God that transforms cities. And how can we change cities? How can our nation fear God when most, if not all, of our churches do not? Let judgment begin in the house of God. Preachers and churches are responsible for letting generations and generations off the hook and entertaining them and appeasing their consciences just to make them feel good and get them back the next week to fill another seat and put a, another dollar in the offering plate. That's wicked. We need to, we, we need to fear God. And any preacher is not willing to stand in a pulpit and proclaim God's word and tell people the truth ought to resign. That's the truth. Why? But most won't do that. Why? Because they fear losing their jobs, their reputations, their churches more than they fear God of that church. What we need is what we happened here in Ephesus: a revival of God's glory, a revival of sin. Even lost people were saying, I don't believe, but I know I'm doing wrong. That tells you what the fear of God produces in a place. Well, that's where we are today. And that's where we will continue to be today. Unless God, by his mercy and by his grace, sends us a revival in this world. What happened What happened as a result of this fear of God and this repentance of even believing and unbelieving people? Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Yeah. The longer they went and the weeks after this, Guess what happened? More people believed. More people repented. God's word overtook the evil and wicked city of Ephesus. Tremendous. Oh, church, may we never be guilty of using God to accomplish our end results or goals. May we be used of God See, when when you want to use God, you get the glory. You have an agenda. You have a motive. But when we want God to use us as he wills, there's no way we can get any kind of credit for anything that happens as a result. Absolutely none. May we as a church begin a fear of God in Bradenton. If we're not going to fear God, how can we expect anyone else to do so? May we repent of our sin, our secret, private, hidden sin that nobody knows about. Fear God. Fear God. You'll have to answer to him one day. You may escape him in your day-to-day life, so you think. But God's wrath is boiling People ought to repent, believe in his gospel that says Jesus Christ died for sinners. And there's hope and mercy and grace only to be found in Christ. And sinners ought to repent and turn to God and believe in him. And when they do, they will be counted as righteous and forgiven and made holy But things will never change unless we fear the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, produce this holy reverence in us. Do your work in us and this nation. We've lost our fear of God. Sin has become open and public paraded in a grand celebration. Give us the boldness to call it out for what it is. But Lord, may we also do so. And may our words be seasoned with salt. And be spoken in love and truth. May we never fear man more than we fear God. Produce a holy reverence in us as was present in Isaiah. As he had that vision and saw you and all he could utter as he saw you in your holiness was woe is me. Lord, that's a fear of God. A fear of God that produced in Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. Oh, Lord, call us to action. Call us to repentance. Call us to revival. Father, I pray that every preacher or pastor or so-called ministry that is blaspheming your name will be dealt with. As they deceive people with their lies and confusion, they can scripture out of context. And it's just leading people to hell. Lord, hold them to account. Hold us to account. God, thank you for your love and your mercy. We will never measure up. We will never be good enough. We will never be worthy enough. We are your bride. We're being washed by the water of your word. Do your work in us today through this text. And do as we have asked. If it be according to your will. You know where every heart stands in this room. and Those who might be listening online. You know us. Do your work in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing hymn together. Thank God for his word before the throne of God above. What a blessed song to end with and a reminder for our week. God bless you, we'll see you.